more books. Hosea chapter 13. Right? Hosea chapter 13. How do you feel about your sin? Not a very pleasant question to think about. You know, we can have numerous responses to our sin. And those responses really reflect what we think about our sin. They reflect how we feel about our sin. They show what we think about what God says about who we are and about what we've done. And so there are numerous responses we could have to sin. We'll just look at briefly a couple of the different ways in which you and I might respond to sin. And then after we do that, we're going to look at Hosea chapter 13, in which Hosea looks at the nation. He says, you are sinners. You need to respond to your sin because you failed to respond to your sin. God is coming, and God is going to judge you for your sin. Hosea chapter 14, we'll look at that next week, and it is, is really the text that, that all kind of culminates. Where he says, hey, you're sinners. God is going to judge you for your sin. But there is coming a day when the judgment's going to be lifted up. And God's going to show mercy and grace. He's going to restore the land to their previous place. In fact, he's going to make it better than it was. Peace, hope, mercy, holiness are going to abound in that day. But before we get there, I've got to punish you because you guys have lived in sin. So as you think about what you think about sin, what you think about sin is also going to affect how you respond to sin. And so some people, they choose to respond to their sin by persisting in their sin. They develop a feeling similar to this about sin. I sin, but there are no consequences for my sin. I got away with it. Perhaps they stole something from their mom when they were a little child. They never got caught. That happened to me. I stole the equivalent to $1 from my mom way back when I was probably like eight. Fortunately, that didn't build in me a confidence to do it more and more. But I held that guilt and I kept that guilt for a long time. It was a very long time, like probably another eight years later before I finally went and I confessed to my mom that I'd stolen a dollar from her. But some people, they see their sin and they, they grow in confidence and they pursue greater and greater sin. And as a result, what happens, they never turn to the Lord in repentance. They never to him and pursue righteousness. Some people will respond by feeling shame. Shame is a common, very common response to sin. And so they become embarrassed as they think about their sin. They think about the, the humility that it's brought into their lives. They think about the, the shame that it's brought into their lives. Maybe they even think about the humility and the shame that it's brought to their family or to their spouse, to their children. And yet shame alone, if that's all that they feel, if that's their entirety of their response, it's going to still leave them without hope. Because shame in and of itself doesn't deal with the root problem. The root problem is sin. You can beat yourself up over your past sin. But the shame and the humility and the guilt that you remember, but if that's all that happens in response to sin, it doesn't take care of the problem. And if the root problem hasn't been solved, the problem is still there and it's going to continue to fester and it'll continue to provide huge problems 
in your relationship with other people, but more importantly, in your relationship with God. They come under conviction in their sin, and yet they choose to simply hide under something else. Finding something that allows them to forget about the humility, about the shame. But then there is another group, and they respond to their sin by realizing that their sin is an affront against the holy character of our God. And as they realize that they have sinned against the holy God, they pursue steady and consistent change. Not through their own strength, but through the strength that God provides as they come to faith in Christ. You see, this group will begin to slowly see evidence of God's sanctifying work in their lives. Paul really summarizes this idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10-11. through 11. He says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. That's the kind of attitude that God desires to see in people towards their sin. That's the kind of attitude that you and I need to develop in response to our own sin. And we don't see that in Hosea chapter 13. The nation of Israel sees their sin, and unfortunately they're like the vast majority of people whose response is to deny or to excuse or to somehow explain away their sin. And when we do this, we fail to deal with our sin. It's seen repeatedly in Scripture. Look at Adam and Eve. What do Adam and Eve do? They point fingers at each other and say, hey, it's the woman you gave me. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's the serpent's fault. It's not my fault. We see it also in Moses. Moses is told, hey, go and tell the people God is going to free you from the land. And what does he do? Oh, no, I, I couldn't possibly do that. Look at my life. Look at who I am. I'm not, I'm not qualified. And he blames and he points at all sorts of other things. Peter is, is double-faced as he is told that he's supposed to accept everyone now that he's been received by Christ. And it's all too common that we too are confronted with our sin, but it it's all too easy for us to excuse it, to deny it, or to somehow try to cover it up. And really, what we're doing when we do that is we're denying the love of God. Because the love of God has made atonement for our sins. It's made a covering for our sins. It's made it possible for us to have a relationship with God. But it's only through the love of God, as is seen in the gift of Jesus Christ, that we deny it, we reject it. This is exactly what's happening in Hosea's day. God's promise in Hosea chapter 12, hey, one day is coming, I am going to provide mercy, I'm going to provide grace. That's why he points to Jacob, and he says, hey, Jacob found this out. There's a solution to the lies and deception. It's trusting in God. And yet they rejected that plan. They've continued to persist in rebellion. They've continued to persist in their own disobedience. And so, Hosea chapter 13 is God's judgment. 
That's judgment for their patterns of abounding sin. If you would take your copy of God's Word, stand with me, and we will read together Hosea chapter 13. Verse 1. When Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal worship, all of it is the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the man who sacrificed kiss the cows. Therefore, they shall be like the morning cloud, like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off from a threshing floor, and like smoke from a chimney. Yet I am the Lord your God, ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me. For there is no Savior besides me. I knew you in the wilderness, in a land of a great drought. When they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled, and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. So I will be to them like a lion, like a leopard by the road I will lurk. I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. I will tear open their ribcage, and there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. O Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is for me. I will be your king. Where is any other? That he may save you in all your cities, and your judges to whom you said, Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The sorrows of a woman in childbirth shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long where children are born. I'll ransom them from the power of the grave. I'll redeem them from death. O oh, death, I will be your plagues. O oh, grave, I will be your among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. Then his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall plunder the treasury of every desire. Has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child ripped open. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. See, the theme of Hosea chapter 13 is this. Our sin removes God's compassion and demands God's punishment. Our sin removes God's compassion and demands God's punishment. It's a sobering truth. And yet that's what Hosea has been telling his people time and time again for the last 13 chapters. Hey, you are sinners. Stop it. God is going to have to punish you. But God doesn't want to punish you. He wants to show you mercy. He wants to give you compassion. He wants to show you grace. And yet you continuously rebel. You continuously disobey. And so God is going to punish. And as he begins to make this argument, he says, hey, let's take a step back and look at your history. And what he says is, hey, when we take a step back and we look at the history of the nation of Israel, all we see is a pattern of sin. And he actually says, hey, the pattern of sin is not getting better. And it's not saying consistent. That'd be one thing. It's actually getting worse and worse. And so there's this pattern of sin that abounds, he says. And this is really seen in verses 1 through 3. And so he says, Israel's disobedience has brought death. Look as he begins this whole section. When Ephraim spoke, trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal worship, he died. And really what he's saying is, Israel's not learned her lesson. 
They've persisted in their long patterns of disobedience and rebellion. They've exalted themselves. That's really what you see going on in the first section of verse 1. They're speaking. What are they speaking? What are they saying? They're exalting themselves. They're being arrogant. They're being prideful. And the result, it seems, of people as they encounter the speaking is there's trembling, there's fear. But is there something really to be afraid of here? This disobedient, hard-headed nation persists in their disobedience. They're arrogant, they're prideful, they boast about their sin, they boast about their path. And notice how the text concludes. But when he offended through veil worship, he died. These people are arrogant, they're prideful, they proclaim their sin, they proclaim how great they are, and yet they begin to follow false god, Baal. And what happens when they follow the false god? God says, enough. The only thing that's fitting for you because of your disobedience and your rejection of who I am, the God who brought you, who, who, who made you. I took Jacob and I made a nation. I, I allowed you to go down into Egypt and I brought you out of Egypt. I allowed you to wander in the wilderness because of your disobedience for 40 years and then I saved you and I brought you into the land and I cleared it out for you to possess and you disobeyed and you turned to the false gods. And so what's the result? The result is death, they die. And that's the result all of us should expect when we sin. And he's really not done with this theme of death. This theme of death that he begins in verse 1 is actually going to culminate in verse 14. Where he really says, hey, not only is death coming upon you, but this isn't some passive thing that's going to happen. This is actually me bringing it upon you. I'm going to make death and destruction, the grave, come upon you because of your disobedience. Because pity is now hidden from my eyes. I'm no longer pitiful when I look at you. Because your sin is so great. It's disgusting. He goes on in verse 2 and he says, Israel's past is, is really just reduplicated in the present. Verse 2, now they sin more and more. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, your sin just keeps going on. You don't take a step back ever and look at your lives and say, something's wrong, something's missing. This isn't adding up. It's not working for us. Instead of taking a step back and trying to re-examine the situation and say, what do we need to do differently? What do they do? They just sin more and more. And notice how he highlights the, the, the sin that they've committed. They're the ones who make these images. Isn't that absurd? They take material that they themselves have to go and work to get. And then they spend excessive amounts of time either carving it or molding these materials into a false god that they then bow down and worship. And then notice how it all culminates. What do they do? Let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves is what they tell each other. And, and commentators debate and discuss among themselves, is this possibly even so horrendous that it's actually a reference to child sacrifice? Because Baal and other false gods around them often used children in their sacrifice, sacrificial offerings. They would literally kill babies in their worship services. And it's likely that this is what he's referencing here. 
They go, they fashion these gods with materials that they find. And then in a pursuit of worshiping those gods, they actually take their own children and they offer their own children in worship. And what he's saying is, the sin that we see hinted at, when you guys got distressed because Moses was gone for a long time up on the hill, and he told Aaron, make us a calf to worship, is reduplicated, and it's worse and worse and worse. Because some of you are actually taking your own kids and you're killing them in an attempt to worship a false god. See how he's saying their sin just abounds? He goes on and he says, Israel's past and present leaves them empty and without hope. Verse 3 really highlights this idea. Notice the imagery that he uses. He uses the word like four different times. And what he's saying is, here's a picture of what you guys are. You're looking for hope. You realize that there's a need for hope. Humanity knows that there's a need for hope. We try to find hope in all sorts of things. In America today, people don't often sacrifice their children in pursuit of hope. But where do we look for hope? Football? Soccer? Basketball? Baseball? Pursuit of money? A better job? Nicer car? Nicer house? All sorts of things we look for hope in. And just because the, the, the source of what they're looking for hope is a false source of hope, and ours is maybe a little bit more acceptable in our society, doesn't make it any better. If it's something that we're pursuing instead of a pursuit of God, instead of a pursuit of the righteousness and the holiness of God, it's still as devious and detestable to God as what they did back then. And so he says, hey, your past and your present, this is what they're like. Therefore, they shall be like the morning cloud. And like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off from a threshing floor, and like smoke from a chimney. What all these things have in common? All of these things, when wind comes, what happens to them? They're gone. A morning cloud. You know how quickly clouds blow away? We were up at camp, me and Elijah, last week. And I think it was Friday night. We were playing, we were having a good time, gaga ball. All of a sudden, there's like a bunch of clouds carrying rain. It rained for what, maybe 15 minutes at most? And then it was gone. That's what he's describing. It's like your pursuit is empty. It doesn't have anything. It doesn't satisfy. He goes on and he gives them more illustrations. Early do. How long does that last? A couple hours? Once the sun's out, not very long, right? Chaff? Not very long. Don't believe me? Go harvesting corn with Tyler. Watch that chaff just blow away as they put the corn into the bins. It doesn't last. And then he says, smoke from a chimney. How long does that last? Once again, not very long. Just recently, we were all at the 4th of July we saw all sorts of fireworks, right? And fireworks produce smoke. But guess what happens? July 5th, when you went outside, where was the smoke? It's gone. And that's what he's saying. Hey, it doesn't last. It doesn't provide you hope. You are going to be destroyed, and you're going to be left with nothing. You have no hope in your abounding sin. 
give it up. Moves on, though. It says, hey, your hope is worthless. And really, I think, I, I think that probably what he's doing is he's building off of something that he's already said. This idea of wind destroying these things that they're placing their hope in. The morning cloud, the early dew, the chaff, smoke. Wind blows them all away. Notice Hosea chapter 12, verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues east, the east wind. He daily increases lives in desolation. Also, they'll make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried to Egypt. What's he saying? Hey, you're pursuing all these things, but the east wind is going to come in. The destruction that God has ordained is going to come in, and it's going to destroy all your sources of hope. We also see a similar thing later on in our text, just a few verses later. I knew you in the wilderness in the land of great drought. I have the wrong verse. Hold on. You see wind, you let me know. It's in this text. Verse 15? Yes, thank you. I, I missed the one in there. So 13 and verse 15, not 13 5. All right. Although he is fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. Then his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. We'll talk about verse 15 a little bit more. But what he's describing is that this destruction that's coming is going to leave everything empty, without hope. Even the treasury is emptied by this wind that's coming. And I think that there's... This imagery that he's using of this wind, this destruction, and he's picking up on that, I think, in verse 3. And so, as you think about these three verses, that their sin abounds, and that their sin is empty, I think what God wants us to know from this text is that God knows about your sin. He knows about your sin. You can't hide it from him. And you may look at your sin and say, my sin is going to provide me with provide me with peace. It's going to provide me with answers, but it won't. It will not. Ultimately, it's going to end up in the same way as we see in verse 3. It's going to be like the morning cloud. It's going to be like your leader. It's going to be like chapters blowing. It's going to be like smoke in the sand. It will not last. God's not impressed with our attempts to find answers and other things. He desires our obedience. He desires our submission. If we're turning to other things other than him for our hope and our peace, we're going to end up disappointed and lacking every single time. The text moves on. He's highlighted their sinfulness. And now he's going to take a step back and he's going to say, look at my faithfulness, though, to you. My faithfulness has saved you. And so you see this in verses 4 through 8 where he highlights, hey, I'm a faithful, good God to you. Even though you disobey and you abound in sin, I am faithful. I care for you. God's faithfulness and salvation. Verse 4 really highlights this idea that God is, is the exclusive Savior of Israel in Egypt. Verse 4. Yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me. For there is no Savior besides me. What does God do? He begins by highlighting who he is, his character. He says, I am the one who saves. I am your God. 
You should not pursue any other God besides me because I'm the one who's, who's your provider, who's your sustainer. He's severely highlighting the fact that he is a faithful, that he's a good God. He's a God who's able to care for people and does care for people. But notice, he goes on and he says, God's provision for Israel really culminates as they forget and abandon their God. Notice verse 5. I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. And how do they respond? When they had pasture, they were filled, they were filled, and their hearts were exalted, therefore they forgot me. Notice what God says. He says, I, I provided for you. I provided for you and I sustained you. He knew them in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. Who was it who provided for them in the wilderness? was God. As they're wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience, how does God provide for them? He provides for them by giving them manna. He provides for them by giving them quail. He provides for them as he brings them into the land by allowing them to easily defeat their enemies. And they march into a land. They don't plant the olives. They don't plant the grapes. They don't plant the wheat. They march into the land. They, they get the land. Notice how he says it. When they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled and their hearts were exalted. He's already used that word, hasn't he? Look at verse 1. Verse 1. Where Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. Where does all this provision come from? It comes from God. But how do they respond? Do they respond by saying, we're going to worship the one true and living God in response to what he's done for us? No. They respond by forgetting him. By abandoning him. And so he says, Israel's disobedience requires a devastating judgment. Verse 7. So I will be to them like a lion, like a leopard by the road I will lurk. I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. I will tear open their ribcage, and there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. It's a brutal picture of the faithfulness of God in salvation. It's like, you deny me the ability to protect you, to provide for you, to sustain you? Guess what? I'm going to destroy you because of it. And so he uses numerous different illustrations to show the significance of his judgment. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to watch a lion rip into its meal. But it is a truly terrifying sight. And that's what he compares his destruction of the nation of Israel to. He says, it's like a lion feeding. It's like a leopard by the road who's lurking. This isn't some sort of accident. This is a purposeful, intentional waiting, waiting, waiting. And then at the right time, what does he do with it? Just like those kittens that you see playing at your house, right? little mouse toys with little laser toys you can play with your kitten and then what happens? Kind of sit there crouchy and then all of a sudden they pounce on it. That's how he's picturing his judgment. He's waiting for that right time. He pounces and catches the nation. He destroys the nation. Like a bear deprived of cubs. How does a mama bear feel when the cubs are taken away? Pretty bad, right? ferocious. That's how he describes himself. And I'll tear her open, them open, their ribcage. 
and then I will devour them like the lion. The wild beasts shall tear them. It's like, hey, destruction is coming. And so, as we think about this, God is faithful. That's what he's saying in verses 4 and 5. Verse 6 hints at it as well. God is faithful. He's a good God. They're supposed to respond by obedience and reliance upon the Lord, but instead they exalt themselves and they say, we don't need God. We've got it taken care of on our own. Does your life reflect obedience and reliance upon the Lord? Really what he's highlighting in verses 4 through 8 is the fact that he is the only source of hope. And when you reject the only source of hope there is in this life, you are left with nothing but destruction and pain. And so then he moves on, he says, impending judgment is all that's left. I'm going to announce to you that there is impending judgment. In every situation, Israel's only help is the Lord. Notice how he once again returns to the same idea that he's just highlighted. I am the Lord your God. Ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. Verse 9, he once again restates the same type of idea. Oh, Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. I'm your help. I'm your only help. I'm your only hope. But you reject me. And so God says he's going to fulfill their desires. For, he's fulfilled their desires for a king, yet they rejected him. Notice verse 10. I'll be your king. Where is any other? That he may save you in all your cities and your judges to whom you said, give me a king and a prince. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. He says, I am your help. I'm your king. This is supposed to be a theocracy. I'm God. I tell you what to do, and you do it. But what do they do? How do they respond to God giving himself in such a gracious way to the nation of Israel? They rise up in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel's leading them. He's caring for them. They're seeing God work in great ways. Just like a few chapters earlier, what, is, what does Samuel say? The word of the Lord was rare in those days, and by the end of the chapter, as people are listening and responding to Samuel's leadership, all of a sudden the word of God is everywhere in the nation. They're winning battles. Things are going well, and how do they respond? Verses 6 and 8 of 1 Samuel chapter 8 say, I'm sorry, uh, God's going to remove their king. God's anger results in a gift of the king and the removal of the Removal is the next point. Let me go on to 1 Samuel 8, 6 3. But the king, but the thing would displease Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. Or who have they rejected? They've rejected me, that I should not reign over them, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. So God's saying, hey, I gave you a king. I was your king. I was your king. If that wasn't enough, he gave them an actual king. But he does it in anger, he says. And what's he going to do? He's going to take that king away from them in anger. And that anger is going to be seen in the destruction that accompanies the king being taken away. And so he really moves on in verse 12. And he's going to say that this 
coming judgment is inescapable. It's an inescapable judgment. Verses 12 through 16. There's no way out. You can think of the most daunting circumstances you can imagine. Perhaps you've seen the movie of Dunkirk, right? If you've seen that movie, you've kind of thought through, like, it's a pretty impressive situation where, like, the enemies have completely surrounded the Allied forces in World War II. There appeared no way for them to get out. What happens? God allows a storm to be over the city long enough that a vast majority of the Allied troops are able to escape. But this predicament that Israel faces is worse than that. Way worse. God's literally saying there is no help. There is no hope. You are going to be destroyed because of your sin. It's inescapable. And really what he says is, I don't forget your past sin and, and, and will punish sin at the right time. Notice verse 13. Verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound and his sin is stored up. What's he saying? I know your sin. I stored it up. And at the right time, what's he going to do? Just like that leopard that's lurking and waiting and waiting and waiting. And, and I don't know how kittens decide when the right time to pounce on that little mouth toy is or the lazy toy is, but in a similar way, at the right time, he's going to pounce on and destroy you. And he says that the pain of disobedience is compared to the hardship of a hard labor. And really, it's, it, it's quite graphic the way he describes it. The sorrow of a woman in childbirth shall come upon him. He's an unwise son, for he should not stay long where children are born. And you kind of have to think through this, because it's kind of a perplexing verse. What is he describing? What is he saying? Obviously, he's describing the hardship of childbirth. That's apparent from the very first part. But then what is this conversation about an unwise son? What is that supposed to mean? And then, he should not stay long where children are born. What is that about? And what he's saying is that Israel is living foolishly. Israel is living in an unwise manner. Really, he's comparing Israel to the problem that they had in Deuteronomy 32, verse 6. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? He is not your father who brought, bought you. Has he not? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? He's saying you're unwise. Now, what would an unwise child do? Now, literally saying this child is unwise. But is a breech baby a wise baby? It would be a horrible situation. And he's using that type of imagery. He's like, a child who doesn't understand how they're supposed to go through the birth canal to be born in a safe and easiest way possible for the mom is an unwise child. He says, Israel, you're your own worst enemy. Because your lack of wisdom your lack of being willing to follow the Lord has resulted in you staying where children are born. And what's that resulting in? That's resulting in extra pain for the childbirth process. And so you have brought this upon yourself. The punishment, the hardship, the pain, it's your own fault. You're unwise. Repeatedly. Hosea 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. 11, 12, he comes and he says, stop being unwise. Follow 
Bible says he'll show no compassion, he'll show compassion, and you don't do it. You persist in your disobedience. So your disobedience is going to make it an even more difficult process of childbirth than the normal process. Okay? The idea is that this would be painful either way. Childbirth is painful. But if you have a child that's being born breech, you're in a really, really bad situation. And you've done this to yourself. Stop it. Stop sinning in this way. You're an unwise child. And then he goes on. He says, God highlights their hopeless state by describing and calling for punishment. Verse 14 is, is, is a difficult verse to translate. And I actually think that most translations get it wrong. I think that the NIV actually translates it correctly. And so I'm going to kind of read it how I think that it should be translated. But the idea is probably more like, who will ransom them from the power of the grave? Who will redeem them from death? Oh, death, where are your plagues? Bring it on. Oh, grave, where is your destruction? And then, pity is hidden from my eyes. And so what he's saying is, the, the whole context, nothing is really hopeful here. It's all about God is going to destroy them. And so what he's saying is, hey, death, destruction, have your will. Do what you want to these people because I have no more pity. I'm done with these people. They're unwise and the pain that they deserve from this hard childbirth is what they deserve. Bring it on, let them have it. And so he says, death, where are your plagues? Grave, where's your destruction? Bring it. Show them in full force the severity of the consequences of their disobedience. Because I'm done with pity. I'm done with showing them pity. And, and so then he goes on and he says that the fruitful nation will completely lose its fruitfulness in the coming days. Notice how the context is still in judgment. Verse 14, that you know, in an initial reading may appear to promise that God is going to ransom them and redeem them, um, is actually saying, who's going to do this? I'm your help. I'm your savior, and I'm done with you because of your foolishness, because of your lack of wisdom. Pity is hidden from my eyes. Though he is fruitful, remember Ephraim, Ephraim's name means fruitfulness. Though he is fruitful, he's talking about Ephraim, among his brethren, an east wind, the destruction from the Assyrians shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. And what's it going to do? Well, a heavy east wind may make things that are wet dry, right? Windy conditions help clothes dry. Serious wind may cause, like, a small spring to dry up. And that's what he's describing. His spring shall become dry. His fountain shall be dried up. He shall plunder the treasures of every desirable hide. Like, if this wind is so destructive, so harsh, it doesn't only just whip up water and make it evaporate. It's actually going to take the treasures out of the treasury. Why? Because he's not talking about a literal wind. He's talking about the invading Assyrian army that's coming to kill them and take away anything that's valuable. He says, you think you're fruitful. Wait until you see what happens with this east wind. Anything that you thought resembled fruitfulness in the slightest is going to be carried away because I am angry and I'm going to punish. So Israel's guilt will result in complete and final destruction. Notice verse 3 to 16. Samaria is held guilty. For she has rebelled against her God. 
they shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women, their child, ripped open. And that's how he concludes the state of destruction and judgment upon the nation. You see, if Hosea is trying to teach us anything in chapter 13, it really is this, that God punishes sin. You can't get away from it. It's the over abundantly clear message of Hosea 13. You can't make it easier to grasp. You can't make it easier to hear. It's just painful. But their sin is resulting in their own destruction. But it's the truth that humanity needs to hear. You see, your sin demands there's no way to get around it. There's nothing that you can do that will remove the punishments of God that you deserve. There's nothing that you can say. There's nothing that you can give. You have no ability to curb this destruction. God punishes sin. All the time. Completely. And this is where the astounding good news steps in, right? That we deserve punishment. We deserve destruction. Verse 14 is, is literally true of us, and that's why Paul quotes verse 14 as he looks at the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. As he concludes, as he's talked about the, the hope of the resurrection, the, the grace that God provides through Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, he says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? That's why. Because you and I deserve this punishment. You and I deserve this destruction. It's not just something that's true about Israel in the past because of their great sin. No, God looks at your sin and he looks at my sin, and even though it may be a little bit more socially acceptable than you know, publicly killing kids and Worshiping in a public setting like that. God looks at us and he says, Your sin is worthy of the same destruction. But God is also willing to look at you if, through faith in Jesus Christ's finished work, you say, I renounce my own desires. I realize that I have sinned. I realize that I have no hope in my own abilities. And that it's only through faith in Jesus' death burial and resurrection, that I have the ability to stand before God, that God could give me his righteousness and make me a child of God, and that I could then one day stand before him, not with my own filth and dirt for my sin, but covered in the righteousness of God that was paid for and provided by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the hope that humanity has. That's the only hope that's available. That's the only thing that frees you and I from the punishment that your sin and my sin demands. It's in Jesus Christ. But there's application for believers as well. Notice, any pattern of sin must be put off. He doesn't single out one specific area of sin. And in fact, as you flip through the book of Hosea, 
the number of different types of sin that Hosea has highlighted and emphasized throughout the, the many chapters we've been through over the past few weeks and months probably covers just about everything we struggle with. And so if God's convicting you of some sin, guess what? God's will for your life is that you would put that off and that you would stop doing that. He wants you to live in holiness. He wants you to live in obedience. And if we refuse, even as believers, God is willing to punish. Later on today, as we go into our afternoon service, we're going to be participating in the Lord's Supper. But what does he say to those who are participating in the Lord's Supper? That because of their sin, some of them have fallen asleep. Some of them have died. God allows some Christians to face early death because of their sin. Why? Because God punishes all sin. All sin. Not just some, not just the seven things that God looks at and he goes, you know, of all the sins, these rank the top ten, so we'll punish those, but we'll let the rest go. No, he looks at all sin, he says it's all equal. James chapter 2, verse 10 says that if we have been in one point, it's like we've broken all of God's law. So it really, once again, points us back to the fact that God is our only hope in this. And for us, as people who are living in the New Testament church age, our hope is found in Jesus Christ. God punishes sin. And he does so in a horrifying way. You see that in Hosea 13. But it's like the song says. Our sin is, is great, but his mercy is more. He's shown us his mercy. He's shown us his grace through Jesus Christ. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the fact that you are a righteous God. You are a just God. You are a holy God. You are a loving God. And so you do punish sin. We thank you that you're also a righteous God, a just God, and a loving God who's made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins, to be cleansed, made pure, holy, and right before you. To be given the opportunity to be called sons of God. It's truly a, a mind-blowing truth. We thank you for that. We pray that you would help us to live as people who really grow to understand your hatred of sin and your desire for us to live in holiness. In your name we pray.